Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. This week's episode is called Life After the Times for David Aronovich, going solo on Substack. And joining me on The Future of Media Explained sofa is Press Gazette UK Editor Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Dom. So what do we know about David Aronovich and Substack. I feel we know quite a lot about Substack because we've written about newsletters extensively, haven't we? As particularly over the last year. So should we start with Substack? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Now, I know quite a lot about it because I read Press Gazette. <laughs> Bit of a boast. <laughs> Go on then. What would you be your main bullet points? So we know that Substack has more than 2 million paid subscribers, which makes it, if it was a newspaper or a website, it's, it would be the sixth biggest paywalled website in the world. Although obviously Substack's a bit different from that because it's lots and lots of different little brands which all add up to two million. We know that there's a few people making a serious amount of cash on Substack. So we know that there, there are a few who are getting paid in the millions, but Beyond that, we don't really know who's making money on Substack, do we? No. Bron, our reporter, did a good piece recently, which I'd recommend people check out if they're interested looking at who gets the most money. But yeah, it's all a bit of sort of extrapolations because most of it's not put out publicly. So you're sort of working out from this bracket that they've said that they're get paid within what they're getting and who's at the top of the table. I think we've said that the whole thing at the moment adds up to about $20 million in terms of their revenue. So given there are thousands of substackers, there's an awful lot of people not doing it for not much money, but there's a few people who are doing well. Dan Rather, or Rather, former US news anchor, apparently he's getting paid more than $500,000 a year, according to Bronze Research. So probably not, not as much as he used to get paid as a US news anchor, but... It's Still not bad. It's, it's nice to have. Yeah. Isn't it? It's a bit of beer money for him. Yeah, and then, what else do we know? So the Manchester Mill is on Substack, and it's one of the few UK local newspapers that's managed to get some serious subscription revenue, albeit you know, about 1600 at our last count. They're probably more than that now. But that we said that adds up to about 130 grand a year, so that's what we know. How long has it been around for, Charlotte? Substack. Yeah, I would say since around 2020s when it really started growing in scale and sort of recognition. That's when, for example, big columnists like Suzanne Moore joined in around November 2020. So that's when I think it started getting our attention a lot more. Yeah, it's combined two big themes for us, hasn't it? Which are newsletters which have been really important for kind of all publishers, I think, in the last few years, and subscriptions. And it's managed to marry the two because I think it has good subscriptions tech and good email sending tech. Yeah, and it's that question of you don't need a massive audience necessarily to be successful in what you want to do. You can have a really good, small-scale but engaged audience who are willing to pay for what you do because they really like and respect it and want to keep you around. And often with newsletters as well, it's about having a certain personality that 
people like. So not every Substack is based around a person. Some of them, like Manchester Miller, are and a more of a traditional publication than a sort of person's newsletter but many of them are people who have managed to build a thing that people want to subscribe to just around themselves and I think that's really interesting actually that people will pay for just this one person because they they really like what you've got to say. So David Aronovich is the latest sort of big name UK journalist to make the leap or was he pushed? Maybe we'll find out. <laughs> to go from the Times to doing his own thing on Substack. Yeah, he does talk through that sort of process. So I won't give it away. I'll get people. I want people to listen to it from him himself. But basically, from uh, being asked to leave the Times, and then the process of what made him consider Substack, and then taking a couple, a few weeks to think about it, and then getting on it around the end of March and now we're talking on 24th of April and he's already got more than 6,000 subscribers both free and paying but it's not a bad sort of initial number of people reading you considering you know you don't have the Times brand behind you anymore. And he's been sort of one of the big name Times columnists for 18 years. Yeah yeah I didn't know that I don't know why I was gonna say that yeah but yeah 18 it sounds about right. (laughs) And he's also, he does a lot of other stuff, doesn't he? He does a lot on the BBC, doesn't he? And he's yeah, the, the briefing room on Radio 4 is really good. It pops up in other places as well, in other columns. But yeah, the Times was the place that he was particularly known for because he'd obviously been there for so long. Yeah, I think this interview is well worth listening to as well, just for how the process of writing his columns changed over the past 18 years and how he's finding it now, being free from a comment editor and an overall newspaper editor and deadlines with a substack you can literally write to whatever length you want and whatever day you want and it's i think it's been quite a change of tune it's quite interesting how he's been finding that so far brilliant look let's go on to our expert witness david aranovich and let's find out why he left the times and how he's getting on substack yeah, let's. So I started by asking about the line on his Substack About page saying he has a problem that I just can't not do this. So I wanted to ask about whether that means he's got like a columnist's bone in him that means he just has to write and hear a, a bit about his process of writing columns as well before we delve into the times and the Substack of it all. It's funny, really, because... I've always thought all the time that I was a columnist, there would come a day when you get an email from the editor or something like that. In fact, that's not how it happened, but say, you know what? We've decided, as in the famous words, to go in a different direction. And what I would do about it, I, I mean, obviously, I, for the last seven years, I've presented the briefing room on Radio 4. So there have been other things that I've been able to do. But what I would do if the kind of principal place where I would express my thoughts and so on were suddenly to close up. And I knew when it did close up, it would be sudden. I didn't know really how I would react to it. So as soon as I heard that I was going to be leaving the Times, I started, I just said, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be going. And then a writer called Will Storr, who, he's a very good writer, actually, of factual stuff, suddenly contacted me out of the blue and said, wife, Farah's store is really big in organising Substack in, in Britain, so maybe you should have a chat with her. And I'd noticed, of course, on Twitter and so on, that other people were beginning to do this. And I'd actually subscribed to a few things on Substack and so on and enjoyed them. 
but I never really thought about whether I should do it or not and whether I would want to carry on writing. Then as soon as he said it, as soon as I spoke to Farah, I thought, I do, actually. I do want to keep on doing it. I, it's a kind of necessity. What about it is necessary is quite interesting in itself to what it is to me. Is it because I just have to find a, a vehicle for expression? Is it because I somehow want to make contact with lots of people? Is it because I'm a psychic imperialist who wants just to dominate other people's psyches from uh, from somewhere else? And maybe it's all those things, really. But principally, I just like the idea of organising my thoughts in writing, putting it down, and then seeing if I can get other people to want to read it. And I... And now I've started, we can come on a little bit to this later, I find it is rather compelling, or actually maybe a different word is compulsive rather than compelling. It's Yeah, it's interesting. I'll come on more to your Substack itself, obviously, but just on that, you say you have to keep writing almost. When it comes to what you actually write, how easy or hard do you find? I just wonder if you can talk me through your process when you're writing a new column or a Substack post and how long does it take to really get that going? Yeah, the first thing to say is, we'll come on to Substack in a moment, but it is very different. So writing for a newspaper is a very disciplined affair. As So an 1,100-word column, that's an 1,100-word column. It's not a 1,200-word, it's not a 1,000-word, it's 1,100 words. I feel the more professional you are about it, the more you will get it on the dot so that you only give the sub-editors about 50 words that they've got to deal with, really, one way or another. You might give them 50 extra words, so they can decide which of your kind of bon mots really don't really make the grade without actually having to invent stuff themselves or come back to you. So I like to think that at four o'clock, which was the deadline, I would give them copy that which would require minimum amount of horrible work for them and so on. So that's very disciplined. With book reviews, I was much less disciplined. I would I would just have a whole lot of fun with it, with the Times literary pages, and then essentially they could decide whether or not they wanted to run it as a big review with a little picture in it or a little review with a big picture in it because they have more, much more flexibility over the layout of the page. If it was a magazine piece and so on, by and large, you would be looking at a much longer piece which would require a different form of structuring and a different form of thinking about which could come anywhere in about two to 3,000, sometimes even 3,500 words which would be your kind of upper limit. Uh, I should just say that my first two Substack pieces came in at 3,500 words, as long as the longest magazine pieces that I'd written. <laughs> and one or two people on the comments underneath, who rather, I have some very blunt commenters, said, that's a bit too long. So first thing is that you have an absolutely clear target to hit. And that is a a discipline around which you have to structure your argument, essentially. An 1,100-word piece, you can make two points. Not three, not four, not five, two, essentially, and best. And what you also know as a columnist in an argument is that if, is if you lay out the circumstances of your argument, at the halfway point or thereabouts, you have to turn your argument to begin to try to say the thing that you've got to say as opposed to just describing the situation in which you have it. So it's a very clear set of disciplines. And 
The other thing that you've got to do as a columnist, you've got to try to do, I don't think all columnists manage this by any means, is you've got to have something useful to say. You've got to have an argument. And with any luck, it's not going to be exactly the same argument as you've made dozens of times already, which is always a big problem when you've been a columnist for a long time because the chances of your having a brilliant new thought every single week 48 weeks a year for, in my case, 17 years. It's, although life changes and so on, you've got to try and keep up with it a bit and so on. So that's difficult. Then you have got to sell it to the commissioning editor, the comment editor, who also has on the same page, within the Times would have about five other pieces to commission. So there are four other people who might want to write about the same thing as you. If it's a running story... It may already have been written about three times by columnists before you. And there may be columnists after you who've already called the commentator and say, oh, if you don't mind, I'd rather to write about this, etc." And the commentator will say, oh, I'm not sure Aronovich might want to have a go at this. Try and steer him away, will you, because I've got something really interesting to say about this. And so there is that kind of... So in the end, it's highly structured very disciplined, has its own kind of limitations in terms of length and therefore the numbers of points you make, and is also highly mediated by what other people are doing and what the comment editor wants. And that's even before the comment editor takes it to the editor and says, these are the pieces we've got. And if the editor's not in a good mood, he might say, well, I don't want those. Or there's a bit too much of that. One of the editors I worked for was notorious for saying, oh, we've had a bit too much of that. And the comment editors would come back to you and say, oh, it's a really kind of problem. And you said, yeah, but did he engage with the kind of new, brilliant thought that I've had about this? To which the answer, honestly, would have been, no, of course he didn't think about it. Just a, <laughs> and one of our editors was famous for this, and it became very difficult. So the short answer to your question is that it was very disciplined. Now, once you've got that, you, you've agreed the subject and so on, and hopefully you've already got a take. You've already got an argument or a take on it then you're assembling the bits for your argument and so on. Sometimes that will mean you're talking to people. Sometimes it will mean you're just doing kind of straightforward internet and book research and so on to get the building blocks in place. And then what I would do is I would shove it all down on the a Word document and so on in a kind of then order it, then splice the bits into the right order. And then in the afternoon, let's say starting 2 o'clock on a day when a deadline was 4 o'clock, then just do a write-through. So that's the kind of bit where you just put your head down and you kind of motor through the whole lot. I was a slow writer. I'm not a touch typist and so on, so it always takes me a long time. A lot of mistakes, etc. cetera. And, uh, and there it will be at four o'clock, and that would be the process. Out. <laughs> done, done for another week. I thought that the natural way to get to Substack would be your departure from the Times. I know you slightly addressed it in your first Substack piece, but I wondered if you'd mind just talking us through here what happened. Yeah, and the first thing to say about it is, to be quite clear about this, because one of the things I really don't like is people who, when they have to leave an organisation after a long time, bitch about it. As if somehow or other, it was a fantastic organisation up until the moment when they left it, and then the moment they left it, was it's all dreadful and awful. and that's, It's not really consistent. So I never expected to get the Times job. It was a big surprise to me when I got it and was offered a job there. It was because Simon Jenkins had left and gone to The Guardian. And I never considered it to be something that I would do. You know, I always thought I'm going to have to be at the top of my game all the time because 
this is one of the best writing jobs in journalism and you don't it's not a right to have it and I feel that now I didn't have any right to that job and I'd done it for a long time and it is always true that incoming editors will look around them and say here's something I want to do differently or something I want to do better or something I just or I just don't like the cut of that person's jib and I'd rather not have to deal with it so that's the first thing. And the second thing to say is that Times is a great newspaper with fantastic people working for it, and other journalists, etc. Um, so those are the two backgrounds to it. But the manner in which I was told was not great. It was, I do think organisations, I think they got worse at this. But in the, the old days, not even so old, you would anticipate a conversation with the editor. It would be an embarrassing conversation with the editor in which the editor would say, look, you've done a great job and we've had a really great time with you, etc. But I really do want to try and do a few different things, etc. And I think it's time for you to move on. But I didn't get any of that. I just got two people from HR telling me that the editor wanted to try some new ideas. This editor, Tony Gallant, he's never spoken to me any at all. He's made no communication with me before I left, while I was leaving or afterwards. Not one, not a word, not an email, nothing. And I think that's just totally lacking in class. And so this is not a thing about the paper itself. You know, people have to do things in the way in which they want to, but it's not the way I would choose to do it. But that that it is done, I can't... It being done at all, I don't have an argument with, really. Yeah, that's fair enough. As you say, you did have a very good run. (laughs) I did. I did. Yeah, so now you've already mentioned about how you got into thinking about Substack. Yeah, perhaps do you want to just share more about the idea behind what you've chosen to do with it? And yeah. It's scary, isn't it? Because for most of my for most of my career, as I was explaining, it's been structured and I've been institutionalized. There was there's a is a column to come and maybe the magazine asks for a piece and here's the deadline for the piece and that's when you've got to do it by and here's a photographer to go with you, here's your eleven hundred words, etc. Here's your sub editor saying, I've made a few changes, what about that? Here's the subject we're going to negotiate for the column. And then all of a sudden, there's nothing. There's you, there's the form of the Substack thing, which they effectively give you, which is just, which is actually completely plastic. What they give you is a kind of model for managing the subscriptions and so on, which is a brilliant model, by the way, just incredible. But everything else, and a whole lot of advice, and Farah was brilliant about giving advice, so just, just kind of terrific. You can see that a lot of other people are doing it. You know that there's an incredible cacophony out there People have endless choices of who they're going to read and who they're going to follow, what they're going to listen to, and so on. So what have you got to offer? If you're in the Times, you're in the Times. It's already done. It's a done deal. And all of a sudden, that deal's undone, and anything that then happens, you've got to make happen. And it's not at all clear that you can. And you've got to choose everything. You've got to choose your length. You've got to choose your subject you've got to try and work out what it is your readers the reason likely to want you've got to start a relationship with readers in a way you've never quite had before and all you've really got is your kind of past reputation and you've got whole kinds of decisions to make so i just it took me a month to work out 
what kind of approach I wanted to take to Substack. And obviously, I looked at other people's. There are some terrific ones out there. Um, some of the writers I really like. And then some surprising writers like Sam Friedman, who's the most obvious example of a successful Substack, who has suddenly gone from being a kind of policy wonk to a really kind of rather lucid commentator. But as also he and his dad, Sir Lawrence Friedman, who I used to interview when I was first a journalist, a TV journalist, and he was professor of war studies at King's College. We used to talk about nuclear policy, kind of nuclear weapons policy. He's now on that subset too, doing some fantastic stuff about the latest stuff about the situation of the war in Ukraine. Substacks like that. You get substacks like Joshua Rosenberg, who is the legal expert, which are just wonderful one-stop shops to try and understand what's going on in the kind of legal world. People like Helen Lewis, who piggybacks off her Atlantic articles onto the Blue Stocking. Helen Lewis, who is, I think, one of the most talented writers of our journalistic writers of our current generation, etc. I think an awful lot of, and I was secretly hoping the Times would take her as my successor. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So I could see that they were out there, but okay, fine, but what am I going to do? Well, in the end, firstly, what is it that interests me and what am I already so I'm interested in why people believe the things they believe always have been that's conspiracy theories that could be arcane political beliefs or even mainstream political beliefs that go odd but then there's all kinds of other stuff let me give you an example of something i'm thinking about i did my one my last pieces for my absolute last piece for the magazine was about a zempic the the kind of fat busting injection as oh, yeah. it's vulgarly called the comments underneath that piece were absolutely, and there were hundreds, were absolutely typical by and large of a particular attitude towards weight and losing weight and the people who are overweight, which I thought that's worthy of looking into more as a kind of belief system in itself. So I thought one of the substacks or one substack thing might be that. This week, my big substack thing essentially has been Fox News because I can now really write about that. I did mention it in one of my last pieces, which was a book review. But if you look at the Times today, for example, the report of the Dominion Fox settlement is a small story down page, and they've turned the comments off. They actually turned the comments off. So as a result, all these people are writing their rude comments about it under other stories. You can see it happening. You think, what was the point of that? And you know what the point of it was, which was you don't piss in your own backyard or whatever the, the phrase is and so on. But that's rather extending the notion of what your backyard is, I think, rather too far. But I can do it. I can do whatever I like now. I can say the thing without any fear of it being, of it being lost. Now, I will be saying it to many fewer people. <laughs> of course I will, unless I can really kind of build it up. But I'm really saying it to many fewer people, but I can say it. And then Farah said to me this week, she said, you can try doing kind of threads where you just throw out something onto the substack that just intrigues you. I was looking through someone's book that I've got for a review because I'm doing an interview with him about it. And I just misread angioplasty because he actually had had a slight heart attack when, before he bent it, which had made him write the book, actually. And I read it as Angloplasty. Right. And I thought, and of course, you imagine me immediately goes, is that a surgery to try and enhance your Englishness? And so I just put it on the substack and see what people have some fun with it. I had 10 or 15 people then come in and have a little bit of, kind of fun with it. I wouldn't have been able to do that before either. So that's very trivial, but.
it just gives you an idea of how variable it is. And I will be able to put in sound elements. I will be able to create some collective Zoom calls for paid subscribers so we can do Q&As and so on. And it just feels very, it's like a great toy. Oh, and the other thing is I can put my own pictures in. I love doing that. It's like designing my own page. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. So I wanted to ask, you mentioned just then about a potential perk for paid subscribers. So I noticed so far that most of your stuff's been available for all to read for free. And I think there's one paid one so far. I w- obviously, different Substackers have made different decisions about how much to make available for free. I wondered what your decision making had been like there. Are you currently just trying to reach as many people as possible, you know, keep it open to get new people in or... Is it something you might change later? I'm just playing around with it, really, because I don't. The truth is, I don't really know. One of the things that Substack does is it gives you an incredible barrel of metrics, mm-hmm. so you can see which what does what and so on. And actually, you have to be a bit careful with yourself because otherwise, what you'll say is, "Oh, the domestic politics one did very well, whereas this one didn't do very well." So everything's going to be domestic politics, and you can see you feel the kind of temptation moving you in that direction. The advice early in Substack is put your best stuff out for everybody at first and then gradually build in some paid subscribers, stuff only, and then gradually make that quite good too. But actually, I am just mucking around with it. So Farah showed me how to put a paywall into the Substack so that you read a bit of it and then you hit the paywall. Now, I'm thinking about this because it's quite a useful tool in some ways, but I don't want to annoy my readers. Mm. So it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a balance. So that's both the challenge and the pleasure of it, which is you've really it's your sandpit. It's your kind of it's your dressing up box. <laughs> kind of, you go in and go, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and say, so, how did that go? Well, oh, that's a bit odd, et cetera. No, but, no, but now I, it's a very odd thing to be doing after quite a long institutional journalistic career. And I've only been doing it for three weeks, so I, maybe I should hedge this about with, kind of, with the notion that this is early rather mm. than... But it's a lot of fun, really. Once you've written the piece, it's a hell of a lot of fun because you then put it in and you start mucking around with it. But it's very plastic. It's It's got a lot of possibilities to it. Would you recommend it to other columnists or writers who, you know, might want to break free and out of the reins of a wider organisation? So far, are you, are you convinced? I. It's a little bit like discovering a really nice holidaying place. Are you going to recommend it to everybody so they all turn up? 
<laughs> it's really nice. It's got all the amenities, etc. But it's not overcrowded right now. You can still find plenty of room on the beach to have a swim. So are you going to write a great big piece saying, everybody, you should get down to this beach because it's just fantastic, etc. Hope to see you all there next summer. I don't think it's for everybody because some people need the structure. So part of me doesn't want anybody else to join because so there's just me and the people already there. Farah very much wants other people to join because obviously <laughs> it's that kind of business model and she's been a huge help to me. But I mean, everything I've said adds up to enjoy myself really, doesn't it? So if you'd like to do the same. And also the other thing is, if you don't really care too much whether or not you get a mass audience that you want to satisfy yourself and you're content to see where it goes without, I don't know, making it an essential part of your earning at, in the first instance. Like most book writing, actually. Most book writing mm -hmm. is like this. Old JK, when she started famously, had no idea whether or not these books would be, she had certainly no idea they would be as big as they, as big as they are. And most books aren't. And, it's quite possible that my substack won't amount to very much after a year, et cetera, except for enjoyment for me and a few thousand other people. On the other hand, it's possible that it launched and you know, kind of pushed by the Press Gazette out into the industry, zillions of people <laughs> and I will find that I'm a publishing phenomenon. I'm not expecting it, but it'd be good. What are the most useful ways of, obviously you've, apart from the times, as you've mentioned, you've been doing plenty of other things all that time as well what are the other ways that you sort of build your own name as a sort of freelance person is it twitter or twitter and something else how do you make sure people well, know your name firstly at the point where i left the times i was probably about as well known as i'm ever going to be okay probably maybe something else will happen so in a way i've got to take a whole lot of people already know me with me Twitter would be my main way of doing this. Unfortunately, for the second ever one I put out there, they had this fight with Substack, which meant I couldn't actually promote it at all for a few days, which lost me a bit of time and momentum. It was a tiny bit irritating. You soon get over it. I do the briefing room for the BBC, and that's reaching hundreds of thousands of people. So a lot many people know me for doing that. I'm going to be doing a series, a podcast political series for Tortoise Media, I knew the people at Tortoise already. I love their podcasts and their audio stuff. I don't know how popular it is, but I really like it. I think it's very good journalism, and I enjoy listening to it. Almost all of us are not in the mass media business. We're in the niche media business. But we'd all like to have large niches. <laughs> if you imagine there's a kind of in a big room, one of those kind of Palladian buildings, and there are niches all the way down, and there are little niches where you've got kind of dinky little vases. There are big niches where you stick big statues and so on. So I'm aiming to, for a big statue niche if I can get one. But if I can't, I'll have one with just a vase in it. That's a very fun analogy. I just wanted to go back to newspaper columns on one respect, if that's okay, in terms of how do you think more widely newspaper comment sections are changing in terms of, for example, do you think some might be becoming more homogenous in terms of the writers they choose and the opinions they choose to carry? And is that a change that's been happening? There are good writers out. There are some truly terrible columnists getting 
column spaces in British national newspapers. They can't write. The stuff they write is stupid. It's badly researched, but it comes to the prejudices of their readers. I think with one or two exceptions, for example, the what's in the Telegraph is just wall-to-wall rubbish, and it didn't used to be. Whatever you thought of the politics of Telegraph columnists, save 20 years ago, there was a kind of there was a kind of respectability. There's a great thirst these days. Celebrity columnists, plausible columnists. You get a lot of columnists who write essentially a kind of plausible column, which is at first sight it seems to claim together. But you ask yourself just one or two early questions into it, and actually, it's just there's nothing there. And then there are some very good writers out there, but they're not all necessarily all columnists. And then there are the kind of columnists who are just stylists. It doesn't really matter what they're saying, whether what they're saying is quite often nonsense. They just write it so well. There aren't very many of those literary columnists anymore. Matthew Paris is one of the last stylists, really, that sort, where he always just writes it so well that sometimes even when he, what he's writing is more or less nonsense. It's not often. Uh, it's, it's just kind of fun. There are some very good columnists who I disagree with. Dominic Lawson would be a very good example in the Sunday Times of a columnist I usually disagree with, but I always find it useful. I've talked about Helen Lewis. Whenever she can write a column, I'm very up for it. Quite often, somebody like Janice Turner in the Times, I think, is well worth reading. And then, of course, there's my old friend, Danny Finkelstein, who quite often is giving you stuff which is relatively new. I think William Hague is a good writer. And then there are all kinds of really, anyway, it's, and that can happen in almost any, it happens in The Guardian, happens in our paper. Our paper, it's not my paper anymore, is it? Happens in The Times, happens in The Telegraph. But there are so many columnists, so many. People's thirst for opinion is huge, and some of those opinions are on the cusp of not worth listening to. Perhaps a final question to wrap things up. So how optimistic or otherwise are you feeling about the future of column writing and journalism in general I suppose in the UK what do you know I thought you might ask me that and I thought you're gonna have to tell me you're much much nearer the beginning of your career than I am I think I should be asking you the question I honestly do what does it feel like to be a younger journalist trying to negotiate the journalistic world at one level I look at it I think God, there are so many more outlets for writing and for opinion and so on than there used to be. And in a way, that gives lots of people lots more opportunities. There's loads more opportunities than there used to be. But a lot of those opportunities are pretty precarious looking. So what does it look like to you, Charlotte? I think that's a pretty good summary, actually, because, like, for example, I don't know if you'd heard of Galdem, the website that was run by like women of colour that closed recently and that was lots of people were talking about how it gave them their first break in journalism and things like that but then it feels like there are lots but then lots of them are so precarious and on like really struggling so actually they're not really like secure places but then I think things like Substack do like genuinely feel quite exciting in that it seems like there's a lot of growth on there right now but it's I suppose It'll be good to revisit in a year and see how much it is paying off for people of all sorts of writers. All the Twitter stuff's a bit worrying because obviously that's been a place where lots of people have been building up their names. And so if 
it's harder to use it for the good things about journalism, then hopefully someone else, somewhere else will come up for people to do that. But obviously we don't know where that will be. I really agree with that. I found the huge revolutions in the way in which people like me do my work have been Google and Twitter. I just those two. The library function of Google is just astonishing. It gives you a kind of a degree of investigatory power and heft that 30 years ago, cuttings libraries and so on couldn't conceivably give you. And then Twitter as a way, people who use Twitter badly always moan about it because they use it badly. But if you use it well, you zone out the stupidities, et cetera, and just concentrate on the people who are doing good stuff. Something, something happens in Sudan. On Twitter, it used to be the case, certainly two or three years ago, that you would know within about a day, if you had your eyes on it, who was writing from Khartoum, who was good and on the spot. And you would be, and they would be downloading, they would be saying something four or five times a day, and you'd be seeing it first. You'd be putting together a picture really quickly of what was happening, subject to your own kind of editorial capacity to try and see how well, how much they were seeing and so on. And it was just great. It was just Twitter in its journalistic pomp, let's say it's four or five years ago, three years ago, brilliant. And it still is very good, but some of the functions they've introduced to are making it harder and harder for it to be good. The deciding what's for you. They don't know what's for you. I don't want them to decide what's for you. I'm really good at my own research. Bugger off with your for you stuff and your kind of mistaken notion of an algorithm, etc. I know what's good for me because that's what I'm following. That's what I choose. But anyway. Yeah. You've, delivered, you've already followed them for a reason. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I'm hoping that maybe Twitter will eventually he will realise what's that there are different utilities for different sorts of people and that the journalistic utility and research utility for Twitter is a really important function and it drives a lot of people through the site. There are lots of people who just want to say, yeah, yours, etc. on Twitter. Well, fine, okay, but a lot of us use it in a different sort of a way. So. I, I often think people will ask me ridiculously whether I would recommend somebody going into journalism. And I always think, how the fuck would I know? Ask somebody who really is at the sharp end of this, whether it's something that they they would do. You know, Charlotte, if you're making a living out of it in your situation and so on, you're making a go of it, etc., then I think you're the one to ask. Okay, thanks for that, Charlotte. Great interview with David Aranovich. I've been a big fan of him for ages. I always used to enjoy his columns in The Times, so I don't know whether I'm going to pay to read them, though, now. I, li- I like to read The Times because I get so much else with it. I don't know I don't know whether I would pay to read David Aranovich on his own. I don't think I would, but I would probably read the free version. Most of it's still free. He's not gone all paid to start with, so you can definitely check it out. Oh, good. I'll definitely be signing up then because I'm a big, big fan of his writing. And do you pay for any other substacks? Oh goodness, you put me on the spot. You put me on the spot now, Charlotte. Yes, I, I, when John Sweeney was in Ukraine, I was a subscriber to his reports from the front line in Ukraine. And I think, if I recall correctly, you could still read them if you weren't a subscriber. But I felt, for me, it was the sort of digital equivalent of buying him a pint because I just thought, goodness, that was. I really took my hat off to him being on the front line there as an independent freelance doing stuff from Ukraine and having a bit of a pop at Vladimir Putin as a sort of independent person. So I thought I would buy him a drink digitally, and I'm sure he's 
I'm sure he did drink that money I gave to him. <laughs> so that was good. That was via Patreon, though. And I noticed that he had a couple of thousand drivers on Patreon, which I think I worked out would have been in excess of £100,000 a year. So it was, yeah, I imagine that was probably as good, if not better, than his BBC salary. But obviously he didn't get shot at quite so much for the BBC. So <laughs> I think he definitely deserved it. I can't think of any other ones I subscribe to. I was very tempted to take out a subscription to Seymour Hirsch, who is the quite famous US investigative journalist who famously exposed the My Lai massacre in the Vietnam War and is now doing some very interesting stuff on Ukraine. But, yeah, he's left the reservation a bit in terms of being a bit of an outlier now in terms of his reporting because he says he, he believes that the US blew up the Nord Stream pipeline between Russia and Europe, but no, no one else seems to agree with that theory. Not to say he might not be right, but... Yeah, but, but there are lots of sub-stacks I do read. I like I like John Elledge, Newsletter of Almost Everything, and yeah. a few others. Do you, you, don't, you don't subscribe to any, do you, at the moment? So I don't currently pay for any, no, but quite different to your Ukraine ones, I'm subscribed to a few sort of more pop culture ones or young women journalists writing about stuff that they might not in their day-to-day newspaper jobs. For example, one that I enjoy is called past the orcs and it's by eleanor halls who is the music editor at the telegraph and it just delves into different celeb and music issues that she might not get a chance to do in her everyday job so i quite enjoy that sort of thing i'm keep keeping an eye out maybe i'll start paying for some soon (laughs) but yeah it is that question with i think you you mentioned this before but for example if you liked five sub stackers it starts to add up quite quickly compared to just one newspaper subscription so that's the kind of weighing up that you have to do i think yeah i think like a lot of people i collect subscriptions over a period of months and then i have to cut them down a bit because i suddenly get i suddenly have a bit of a, an economy purge i think i think oh this is this is where i can save some money but it's an exciting time isn't it because the uh, my, i think my two penner for what it's worth i think it's a very exciting time because i think people's propensity to pay for things online is only increasing I think the ease with which you can pay for things online is only going to increase. And I think what will really crack it is if there's some sort of technology comes into place whereby you can pay maybe small amounts for things very easily. I know we talk about micropayments a lot. They've never really happened in journalism. But I still think there could be a big shift there which could make this work more. I wonder for something like Substack whether that would work better because one of the reasons newspapers might not like it is that it might take people away who would pay for a subscription otherwise but maybe on Substack you could pay smaller amounts to just read the odd post and you're not really cannibalising in the same way that you would be if for New York Times subscription for example. Yeah, exactly. But the tech's not quite there yet, is it? And I think no. the thing about subscription to tech is you subscribe, they make it easy to subscribe and very hard to unsubscribe. And I think people are aware of that, so they're a bit cautious to get tied up into things. But what do you think then, Charlotte? What do you think are the big take-homes for people who would like to maybe emulate Dan Rather or someone who's uh, someone who's making good money on Substack? Or if you're just an individual brand who wants to launch a successful paid-for newsletter... I like the fact that David admitted that it was scary because even though he's a well-established media figure, it's still something completely new. But if David can try it aged 
68, I think he is, then anyone can. So I, I respected that. And I but I also enjoyed the fact that he said it's like a great new holiday place you don't want to recommend because you don't want it to be flooded with people. Maybe we shouldn't be just saying everyone should go there. But definitely think there's the potential. He seems to be enjoying it so far. He's not been on it for too long, but he was enjoying how easy it is to set up and adapt to how you want it. So it shows if you have a particular idea of how you want it to be, or even if you don't, you can fiddle with it so much. And just because you've seen someone else do something on Substack, yours could still be completely different. So I thought that was quite interesting. Just because they're all Substacks doesn't mean they're all the same thing. It's, it is such a vast platform you can do different things with. So I think that's worth bearing in mind. Brilliant. He's looking very well for 68, isn't he, David Aronovich? Well done him. And he, yeah, hopefully it won't be like a holiday destination that gets too crowded. Hopefully maybe it will be like a street that has lots of pubs and restaurants on it. But then as a result, lots more people want to visit it because there's lots to see there. Is that and a good analogy? And then more places continue to open. I guess, like with all these things, it will reach a peak at some point. It's still relatively fresh, I think. Brilliant. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Editor-in-Chief Dominic Bonsford, UK Editor Charlotte Tobit and engineered by Adrian Bradley. If you want to read a lot more about Substack, check out pressgazette.co.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>